Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Chapter 6 of The Mystery of Edwin Drood. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Alan Chant. The Mystery of Edwin Drood. The Unfinished Novel by Charles Dickens. Chapter 6 Philanthropy in Minor Cannon Corner. The Reverend Septimus Crispsparkle, Septimus because six little brother Crispsparkles before him went out one by one as they were born, like six weak little rushlights as they were lighted, having broken the thin morning ice near Cloisterham Weir with his amiable head, much to the invigoration of his frame, was now assisting his circulation by boxing at a looking-glass with great science and prowess. A fresh and healthy portrait the looking-glass presented of the Reverend Septimus, fainting and dodging with the utmost artfulness, and hitting out from the shoulder with the utmost straightfulness, while his radiant features teemed with innocence, and soft-hearted benevolence beamed from his boxing-gloves. It was scarcely breakfast-time yet, for Mrs. Crispsparkle, mother, not wife, of the Reverend Septimus, was only just down and waiting for the urn. Indeed, the Reverend Septimus left off at this very moment to take the pretty old lady's entering face between his boxing-gloves and kiss it. Having done so with tenderness, the Reverend Septimus turned to again, countering with his left and putting in his right, in a tremendous manner. "'I say every morning of my life that you'll do it at last, Sep,' remarked the old lady, looking on. "'And so you will.' "'Do what, my dear? Break the pier-glass, or burst a blood-vessel. Neither, please God, my dear. Here's wind, ma. Look at this.' In a concluding round of great severity, the Reverend Septimus administered and escaped all sorts of punishment, 
and wound up by getting the old lady's cap into chancery, such is the technical term used in scientific circles by the learned in the noble art. With a lightness of touch that hardly stirred the lightest lavender or cherry ribboned on it, magnanimously releasing the defeated just in time to get his gloves into a drawer and feign to be looking out of window in a contemplative state of mind when a servant entered, the Reverend Septimus then gave place to the urn and other preparations for breakfast. These completed, and the two alone again. It was pleasant to see, or would have been if there had been any one to see it, which there never was, the old lady standing to say the Lord's Prayer aloud, and her son, minor canon nevertheless, standing with bent head to hear it, he being within five years of forty, much as he had stood to hear the same words from the same lips when he was within five months of four. What is prettier than an old lady, except a young lady, when her eyes are bright, when her figure is trim and compact, when her face is cheerful and calm, when her dress is as the dress of a china shepherdess, so dainty in its colours, so individually assorted to herself, so neatly moulded on her? Nothing is prettier, thought the good canon frequently, when taking his seat at table opposite his long-widowed mother. Her thought at such times may be condensed into the two words that oftenest did duty together in all her conversations. My sept! They were a good pair to sit breakfasting together in Minor Cannon Corner, Cloisterham. For Minor Cannon Corner was a quiet place in the shadow of the cathedral, which the cawing of the rooks, the echoing footsteps of rare passers, the sound of the cathedral bell or the roll of the cathedral organ, seemed to render more quiet than absolute silence. Swaggering fighting men had had their sentries of ramping and raving about Minor Cannon Corner, and beaten serfs had had their sentries of drudging and dying there, and powerful monks had had their sentries of being sometimes useful and sometimes harmful there and behold, they were all gone out of Minor Cannon Corner, and so much the better. Perhaps one of the highest uses of their ever having been there was, that they might be left behind that blessed air of tranquillity which pervaded Minor Cannon Corner, and that serenely romantic state of mind, productive for the most part of pity and forbearance, which is engendered by a sorrowful story that is all told, or a pathetic play that is played out. Red brick walls harmoniously toned down in colour by time, strong-rooted ivy, latticed windows, panelled rooms, big oaken beams in little places, and stone-walled gardens where annual fruit yet ripened upon monkish trees, were the principal surroundings of pretty old Mrs. Crisp-Sparkle, and the Reverend Septimus, as they sat at breakfast. "'And what, my dear?' inquired the minor canon, giving proof of a wholesome and vigorous appetite. "'Does the letter say?' The pretty old lady, after reading it, had just laid it down upon the breakfast-cloth. She handed it over to her son. 
Now the old lady was exceeding proud of her bright eyes being so clear that she could read writing without spectacles. Her son was also so proud of the circumstance, and so dutifully bent on her deriving the utmost possible gratification from it, that he had invented the pretense that he himself could not read writing without spectacles. Therefore he now assumed a pair of grave and prodigious proportions, which not only seriously inconvenienced his nose and his breakfast, but seriously impeded his perusal of the letter, for he had the eyes of a microscope and a telescope combined when they were unassisted. "'It's from Mr. Honeythunder, of course,' said the old lady, folding her arms. "'Of course,' assented her son. He then lamely read on. "'Haven of Philanthropy. Chief Offices, London, Wednesday.' "'Dear madam, I write in the—in the what's this? What does he write in?' "'In the chair,' said the old lady. The Reverend Septimus took off his spectacles that he might see her face, as he exclaimed, "'Why, what should he write in?' "'Bless me, bless me, Sept,' returned the old lady. "'You don't see the context.' Give it back to me, my dear. Glad to get his spectacles off, for they always made his eyes water, her son obeyed, murmuring that his sight for reading manuscript got worse and worse daily. I write, his mother went on, reading very perspicuously and precisely, from the chair to which I shall probably be confined for some hours. Septimus looked at the row of chairs against the wall, with a half-protesting and half-appealing countenance. "'We have,' the old lady read on with a little extra emphasis, "'a meeting of our convened chief composite committee of central and district philanthropists at our head-haven as above, and it is their unanimous pleasure that I take the chair.' Septimus breathed more freely, and muttered, "'Oh, if he comes to that, let him.' "'Not to lose a day's post, I take the opportunity of a long report being read, denouncing a public miscreant.' "'It is a most extraordinary thing,' interposed the gentle minor canon, laying down his knife and fork to rub his ear in a vexed manner that these philanthropists are always denouncing somebody, and it is another most extraordinary thing that they are always so violently flush of miscreants. Denouncing a public miscreant, the old lady resumed, to get our little affair of business off my mind. I have spoken with my two wards, Neville and Helena Landless, on the subject of their defective education, and they give in to the plan proposed, as I should have taken good care they did, whether they liked it or not. "'It is another most extraordinary thing,' remarked the minor canon in the same tone as before, "'that these philanthropists are so given to seizing their fellow-creatures by the scruff of the neck, and, as one may say, 
bumping them into the paths of peace. I beg your pardon, ma dear, for interrupting. Therefore, dear madam, you will please prepare your son, the Reverend Mr. Septimus, to expect Neville as an inmate to be read with on Monday next. On the same day, Helena will accompany him to Cloisterham to take up her quarters at the nun's house, the establishment recommended by yourself and son jointly. Please likewise to prepare for her reception and tuition there. The terms in both cases are understood to be exactly as stated to me in writing by yourself when I opened a correspondence with you on this subject, after the honour of being introduced to you at your sister's house in town here. With compliments to the Reverend Mr. Septimus, I am, dear madam, your affectionate brother, in philanthropy, Luke Honeythunder. Well, ma, said Septimus, after a little more rubbing of his ear, we must try it. There can be no doubt that we have room for an inmate, and that I have time to bestow upon him, and inclination too. I must confess to feeling rather glad that he is not Mr. Honeythunder himself. Though that seems wretchedly prejudiced, does it not? For I never saw him. Is he a large man, ma? I should call him a large man, my dear, the old lady replied after some hesitation. But that his voice is so much larger. Than himself? Than anybody. Ha! Huh, said Septimus. After finishing his breakfast, as if the flavour of the superior family souchong, and also of the ham and toast and eggs, were a little on the wane, Mrs. Crisp-Sparkle's sister, another piece of Dresden china, and matching her so neatly that they would have made a delightful pair of ornaments for the two ends of any capacious old-fashioned chimney-piece, and by right should never have been seen apart, was the childless wife of a clergyman holding corporate preferment in London City. Mr. Honeythunder, in his public character of Professor of Philanthropy, had come to know Mrs. Crisp Sparkle during the last rematching of the china ornaments, in other words, during her last annual visit to her sister, after a public occasion of a philanthropic nature when certain devoted orphans of tender years had been glutted with plum-buns and plum-bumptiousness. These were all the antecedents known in Minor Cannon Corner of the coming pupils. "'I am sure you will agree with me, Ma,' said Mr. Crisp Sparkle, after thinking the matter over, "'that the first thing to be done is to put these young people as much at their ease as possible. There is nothing disinterested in the notion, because we cannot be at our ease with them, unless they are at their ease with us. Now Jasper's nephew is down here at present, and like takes to like, and youth takes to youth. He is a cordial young fellow, and we will have him to meet the brother and sister at dinner. That's three. We can't think of asking him without asking Jasper. That's four. 
add Miss Twinkleton, and the fairy bride that is to be, and that's six. Add our two selves, and that's eight. Would eight at a friendly dinner at all put you out, Ma? Nine would, Sept, returned the old lady, visibly nervous. My dear Ma, I particularise eight. The exact size of the table and the room, my dear. So it was settled that way, and when Mr. Crisparkle called with his mother upon Miss Twinkleton to arrange for the reception of Miss Helena Landless at the nun's house, the two other invitations having reference to that establishment were proffered and accepted. Miss Twinkleton did, indeed, glance at the globes, as regretting that they were not formed to be taken out into society, but became reconciled to leaving them behind. Instructions were then dispatched to the philanthropist for the departure and arrival, in good time for dinner, of Mr. Neville and Miss Helena, and the stock for soup became fragrant in the air of Minor Cannon Corner. In those days there was no railway to Cloisterham, and Mr. Sapsey said, There never would be. Mr. Sapsey said more. He said, there never should be. And yet, marvellous to consider, it has come to pass in these days that express trains don't think Cloisterham worth stopping at, but yell and whirl through it on their larger errands, casting the dust off their wheels as a testimony against its insignificance. Some remote fragment of main line to somewhere else there was, which was going to ruin the money-market if it failed, and church and state if it succeeded, and, of course, the constitution, whether or no. But even that had already so unsettled Cloisterham traffic, that the traffic, deserting the high-road, came sneaking in from an unprecedented part of the country by a back stable-way, for many years labelled at the corner, Beware of the Dog. To this ignominious avenue of approach Mr. Crisparkle repaired, awaiting the arrival of a short squat omnibus, with a disproportionate heap of luggage on the roof, like a little elephant with infinitely too much castle, which was then the daily service between Cloisterham and external mankind. As this vehicle lumbered up, Mr. Crisparkle could hardly see anything else of it for a large outside passenger seated on the box, with his elbows squared and his hands on his knees, compressing the driver into a most uncomfortably small compass, and glowering about him with a strongly marked face. "'Is this Cloisterham?' demanded the passenger, in a tremendous voice. "'It is!' replied the driver, rubbing himself as if he ached after throwing the reins to the ostler, and I never was so glad to see it. Tell your master to make his box-seat wider, then. Your master is morally bound, and ought to be legally bound, under tremendous penalties, to provide for the comfort of his fellow-man. The driver instituted, with the palms of his hands, a superficial perquisition into the state of his skeleton, which seemed to make him anxious. "'Have I sat upon you?' 
asked the passenger. "'You have,' said the driver, as if he didn't like it at all. "'Take that card, my friend.' "'I think I won't deprive you on it,' returned the driver, casting his eyes over it with no great favour, without taking it. "'What's the good of it to me?' "'Be a member of that society,' said the passenger. "'What shall I get by it?' asked the driver. "'Brotherhood,' returned the passenger in a ferocious voice. "'Thank ye,' said the driver, very deliberately as he got down. "'My mother was contented with myself, and so am I. "'I don't want no brothers.' "'But you must have them,' replied the passenger, also descending, "'whether you like it or not. "'I am your brother.' "'I say,' he postulated the driver, "'becoming more chafed in temper, "'not too far. "'The worm will, when—' "'But here Mr. Crisparkle interposed, "'remonstrating aside in a friendly voice. "'Joe! Joe! "'Joe! Don't forget yourself, Joe, my good fellow!' And then, when Joe peaceably touched his hat, accosting the passenger with, "'Mr. Honeythunder?' "'That is my name, sir.' "'My name is Crisp-Sparkle.' "'Reverend Mr. Septimus, glad to see you, sir. Neville and Helena are inside.' having a little succumbed of late, under the pressure of my public labours, I thought I would take a mouthful of fresh air, and come down with them, and return at night. So you are the Reverend Mr. Septimus, are you? Surveying him on the whole with disappointment, and twisting a double eyeglass by its ribbon, as if he were roasting it, but not otherwise using it. Ah! I expected to see you older, sir. I hope you will, was the good-humoured reply. Eh? demanded Mr. Honeythunder. Only a poor joke, not worth repeating. Joke? I, I never see a joke, Mr. Honeythunder frowningly retorted. A joke is wasted on me, sir. Where are they? Helena and Neville, come here. Mr. Crisp-Sparkle has come down to meet you. An unusually handsome, lithe young fellow, and an unusually handsome, lithe girl, much alike, both very dark and very rich in colour. She, of almost the gypsy type, something untamed about them both, a certain air upon them of hunter and huntress, yet withal a certain air of being the objects of the chase rather than the followers, slender, supple, quick of eye and limb, half-shy, half-defiant, fierce of look, an indefinable kind of pause coming and going on their whole expression, both of face and form, which might be equally likened to the pause before a crouch or a bound. The rough mental notes made in the first five minutes by Mr. Crisparkle 
would have read thus verbatim. He invited Mr. Honeythunder to dinner with a troubled mind, for the discomfiture of the dear old china shepherdess lay heavy on it, and gave his arm to Helena Landless. Both she and her brother, as they walked all together through the ancient streets, took great delight in what he pointed out of the cathedral and the monastery ruin, and wondered, so his notes ran on, much as if they were beautiful barbaric captives brought from some wild tropical domain. Mr. Honeythunder walked in the middle of the road, shouldering the natives out of his way, and loudly developing a scheme he had for making a raid on all the unemployed persons in the United Kingdom, laying every one of them by the heels in jail, and forcing them, on pain of prompt extermination, to become philanthropists. Mrs. Crisp-Sparkle had need of her own share of philanthropy when she beheld this very large and very loud excrescence on the little party. Always something in the nature of a boil upon the face of society, Mr. Honeythunder expanded into an inflammatory when in Minor Cannon Corner. Though it was not literally true, as was facetiously charged against him by public unbelievers, that he called aloud to his fellow-creatures, "'Curse your souls and bodies! Come here and be blessed!' Still, his philanthropy was of that gunpowderous sort, that the difference between it and animosity was hard to determine. You were about to abolish military force, but you were first to bring all commanding officers who had done their duty to trial by court-martial for that offence, and shoot them. You were to abolish war, but were to make converts by making war upon them, and charging them with loving war as the apple of their eye. You were to have no capital punishment, but were first to sweep off the face of the earth all legislators, jurists, and judges who were of the contrary opinion. You were to have universal concord, and were to get it by eliminating all the people who wouldn't, or conscientiously couldn't, be concordant. You were to love your brother as yourself, but after an indefinite interval of maligning him, very much as if you hated him, and calling him all manner of names. Above all things, you were to do nothing in private, or on your own accord, you were to go to the offices of the Haven of Philanthropy, and put your name down as a member and a professing philanthropist. Then you were to pay up your subscription, get your card of membership, and your ribbon and medal, and were evermore to live upon a platform, and evermore to say what Mr. Honeythunder said, and what the Treasurer said, and what the Sub-Treasurer said, and what the Committee said, and what the sub-committee said, and what the secretary said, and what the vice-secretary said. And this was usually said, in the unanimously carried resolution under hand and seal to the effect, that this assembled body of professing philanthropists' views, with indignant scorn and contempt, not unmixed with utter detestation and loathing abhorrence, in short, the baseness of all those who do not belong to it, and pledges itself to make as many obnoxious statements as possible about them, 
without being at all particular as to facts. The dinner was a most doleful breakdown. The philanthropist deranged the symmetry of the table, sat himself in the way of the waiting, blocked up the thoroughfare, and drove Mr. Tope, who assisted the parlour-maid, to the verge of distraction by passing plates and dishes on over his own head. Nobody could talk to anybody, because he held forth to everybody at once, as if the company had no individual existence, but were a meeting. He impounded the Reverend Mr. Septimus as an official personage to be addressed, or kind of human peg to hang his oratorial hat on, and fell into the exasperating habit, common among such orators, of impersonating him as a wicked and weak opponent. Thus he would ask, "'And will you, sir, now stultify yourself by telling me?' and so forth, when the innocent man had not opened his lips, nor meant to open them. Or he would say, "'Now see, sir, to what a position you are reduced. I will leave you no escape. After exhausting all the resources of fraud and falsehood, during years upon years, after exhibiting a combination of dastardly meanness with ensanguined daring, such as the world has not often witnessed, you have now the hypocrisy to bend the knee before the most degraded of mankind, and to sue and whine and howl for mercy whereat the unfortunate minor canon would look, in part indignant and in part perplexed, while his worthy mother sat bridling, with tears in her eyes, and the remainder of the party lapsed into a sort of gelatinous state, in which there was no flavour or solidity, and very little resistance. But the gush of philanthropy that burst forth— when the departure of Mr. Honey Thunder began to impend, must have been highly gratifying to the feelings of that distinguished man. His coffee was produced, by the special activity of Mr. Tope, a full hour before he wanted it. Mr. Crisp-Sparkle sat with his watch in his hand for about the same period, lest he should overstay his time. The four young people were unanimous in believing that the cathedral clock struck three-quarters, when it actually struck but one. Miss Twinkleton estimated the distance to the omnibus at five-and-twenty minutes' walk, when it was really five. The affectionate kindness of the whole circle hustled him into his greatcoat, and shoved him out into the moonlight, as if he were a fugitive traitor with whom they sympathised, and a troop of horse were at the back door. Mr. Crisp Sparkle and his new charge, who took him to the omnibus, were so fervent in their apprehensions of his catching cold, that they shut him up in it instantly and left him, with still half an hour to spare. End of chapter 6 Read by Alan Chant of Tunbridge, Kent, England, during the summer of 2007.
Chapter Seven of the Mystery of Edwin Drood. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Alan Chant. The Mystery of Edwin Drood, the unfinished novel by Charles Dickens. Chapter Seven: More Confidences Than One. "'I know very little of that gentleman, sir,' said Neville to the minor canon as they turned back. "'You know very little of your guardian?' the minor canon repeated. "'Almost nothing.' "'How came he?' "'To be my guardian?' "'I'll tell you, sir. I suppose you know that we come, my sister and I, from Ceylon?' "'Indeed, no.' I wonder at that. We lived with a stepfather there. Our mother died there when we were little children. We have had a wretched existence. She made him our guardian, and he was a miserly wretch who grudged us food to eat and clothes to wear. At his death he passed us over to this man, for no better reason that I know of than his being a friend or connection of his whose name was always in print and catching his attention. "'That was lately, I suppose?' "'Quite lately, sir. This stepfather of ours was a cruel brute, as well as a grinding one. It is well he died when he did, or I might have killed him.' Mr. Crisparkle stopped short in the moonlight and looked at his hopeful pupil in consternation. "'I surprise you, sir,' he said, with a quick change to a submissive manner. "'You shock me! Unspeakably shock me!' The pupil hung his head for a little while as they walked on, and then said, "'You never saw him beat your sister. I have seen him beat mine more than once or twice, and I never forgot it.' "'Nothing,' said Mr. Crisparkle. Not even a beloved and beautiful sister's tears under dastardly ill-usage. He became less severe, in spite of himself, as his indignation rose, could justify those horrible expressions that you used. I am sorry I used them, and especially to you, sir. I beg to recall them, but permit me to set you right on one point— you spoke of my sister's tears. My sister would have let him tear her to pieces before she would have let him believe that he could make her shed a tear. Mr. Crisp Sparkle reviewed those mental notes of his, and was neither at all surprised to hear it, nor at all disposed to question it. Perhaps you will think it strange, sir. This was said in a hesitating voice that I should so soon ask you to allow me to confide in you, and to have the kindness to hear a word or two from me in my defence. Defence? Mr. Crisparkle repeated. You are not on your defence, Mr. Neville. I think I am, sir. At least, I know I should be, if you were better acquainted with my character. Well, Mr. Neville, was the rejoiner, 
what if you leave me to find it out? Since it is your pleasure, sir, answered the young man, with a quick change in his manner to sullen disappointment, since it is your pleasure to check me in my impulse, I must submit. There was that in the tone of this short speech which made the conscientious man to whom it was addressed uneasy. It hinted to him that he might, without meaning it, turn aside a trustfulness beneficial to a misshapen young mind, and perhaps to his own power of directing and improving it. They were within sight of the lights in his windows, and he stopped. "'Let us turn back and take a turn or two up and down, Mr. Neville, or you may not have time to finish what you wish to say to me. You are hasty in thinking that I meant to check you. Quite the contrary. I invite your confidence.' "'You have invited it, sir, without knowing it, ever since I came here. I say, ever since, as if I had been here a week. The truth is we came here, my sister and I, to quarrel with you, and affront you, and break away again. "'Really?' said Mr. Crisp-Sparkle, at a dead loss for anything else to say. "'You see, we could not know what you were beforehand, sir, could we?' "'Clearly not,' said Mr. Crisp-Sparkle. "'And having liked no one else with whom we have ever been brought into contact, we had made up our minds not to like you.' "'Really?' said Mr. Crisp-Sparkle again. "'But we do like you, sir, and we see an unmistakable difference between your house and your reception of us and anything else we have ever known. This and my happening to be alone with you, and everything around us seeming so quiet and peaceful after Mr. Honeythunder's departure.' and Cloisterham being so old and grave and beautiful, with the moon shining on it, these things inclined me to open my heart. "'I quite understand, Mr. Neville, and it is salutary to listen to such influences.' "'In describing my own imperfections, sir, I must ask you not to suppose that I am describing my sister's.' She has come out of the disadvantages of our miserable life as much better than I am, as that cathedral tower is higher than those chimneys. Mr. Chris Sparkle, in his own breast, was not so sure of this. I have had, sir, from my earliest remembrance to suppress a deadly and bitter hatred. This has made me secret and revengeful. I have been always tyrannically held down by the strong hand. This has driven me in my weakness to the resource of being false and mean. I have been stinted of education, liberty, money, dress, the very necessities of life, the commonest pleasures of childhood, the commonest possessions of youth. This has caused me to be utterly wanting in I don't know what emotions or remembrances or good instincts. I have not even a name for the thing, you see, that you have had to work upon in other young men to whom you have been accustomed. This is evidently true, but this is not encouraging, 
thought Mr. Crisparkle as they turned again. And to finish with, sir, I have been brought up among abject and servile dependents of an inferior race, and I may easily have contracted some affinity with them. Sometimes I don't know but that it may be a drop of what is tigerish in their blood. As in the case of that remark just now, thought Mr. Crisparkle. In a last word of reference to my sister, sir, we are twin children, you ought to know to her honour that nothing in our misery ever subdued her, though it often cowed me. When we ran away from it, we ran away four times in six years, to be soon brought back and cruelly punished. The flight was always of her planning and leading. Each time she dressed as a boy, and showed me the daring of a man. I take it we were seven years old when we first decamped, but I remember when I lost the pocket-knife with which she was to have cut her hair short, how desperately she tried to tear it out, or bite it off. I have nothing further to say, sir, except that I hope you will bear with me, and make allowance for me. Of that, Mr. Neville, you may be sure, returned the minor canon, I don't preach more than I can help, but I will not repay your confidence with a sermon. But I entreat you to bear in mind, very seriously and steadily, that if I am to do you any good, it can only be with your own assistance, and that you can only render that efficiently by seeking aid from heaven. I will try to do my part, sir. And, Mr. Neville, I will try to do mine. Here is my hand on it. May God bless our endeavours. They were now standing at his house-door, and a cheerful sound of voices and laughter was heard within. "'We will take one more turn before going in,' said Mr. Crisparkle, "'for I want to ask you a question. When you said you were in a changed mind concerning me—' You spoke not only for yourself, but for your sister, too? Undoubtedly I did, sir. Excuse me, Mr. Neville, but I think you have had no opportunity of communicating with your sister since I met you. Mr. Honey Thunder was very eloquent, but perhaps I may venture to say, without ill-nature, that he rather monopolised the occasion. May you not have answered for your sister without sufficient warrant? Neville shook his head with a proud smile. You don't know, sir, yet what a complete understanding can exist between my sister and me, though no spoken word, perhaps hardly as much as a look, may have passed between us. She not only feels as I have described, but she very well knows that I am taking this opportunity of speaking to you, both for her and for myself. Mr. Crisparkle looked in his face with some incredulity, but his face expressed such absolute and firm conviction of the truth of what he said, that Mr. Crisparkle looked at the pavement and mused, until they came to his door again. "'I will ask for one more turn, sir, this time,' 
said the young man, with a rather heightened colour rising in his face. "'But for Mr. Honeythunder's, I think you called it eloquent, sir,' somewhat slyly. "'I, uh, yes, I called it eloquence,' said Mr. Crisparkle. "'But for Mr. Honeythunder's eloquence, I might have had no need to ask you what I am going to ask you. This Mr. Edwin Drood, sir, I, I think that's the name. Quite correct, said Mr. Crisparkle. D-R-O-O-D. Does he, or did he, read with you, sir? Never, Mr. Neville. He comes here visiting his relation, Mr. Jasper. Is Miss Bud his relation, too, sir? Now, why should he ask that? with sudden superciliousness, thought Mr. Crisparkle. Then he explained aloud what he knew of the little story of their betrothal. "'Oh, that's it, is it?' said the young man. "'I understand his air of proprietorship now.' This was said so evidently to himself, or to anybody rather than Mr. Crisparkle, that the latter instinctively felt as if to notice it would be almost tantamount to noticing a passage in a letter which he had read by chance over the writer's shoulder. A moment afterward they re-entered the house. Mr. Jasper was seated at the piano as they came into his drawing-room, and was accompanying Miss Rosebud while she sang. It was a consequence of his playing the accompaniment without notes, and of her being a heedless little creature very apt to go wrong, that he followed her lips most attentively, with his eyes as well as hands, carefully and softly hinting the keynote from time to time, standing with an arm drawn round her, but with a face far more intent on Mr. Jasper than on her singing, stood Helena, between whom and her brother an instantaneous recognition passed, in which Mr. Crisparkle saw, or thought he saw, the understanding that had been spoken of flash out. Mr. Neville then took his admiring station, leaning against the piano opposite the singer. Mr. Crisparkle sat down by the china shepherdess. Edwin Drood gallantly furled and unfurled Miss Twinkleton's fan, and that lady passively claimed that sort of exhibitor's proprietorship in the accomplishment on view, which Mr. Tope the verger daily claimed in the cathedral service. The song went on. It was a sorrowful strain of parting, and the fresh young voice was very plaintive and tender. As Jasper watched the pretty lips, and ever and again hinted the one note as though it were a low whisper from himself, the voice became less steady, until all at once the singer broke into a burst of tears and shrieked out, with her hands over her eyes, "'I can't bear this!' I am frightened. Take me away. With one swift turn of her lithe figure, Helena laid the little beauty on a sofa, as if she had never caught her up. Then on one knee beside her, and with one hand upon her rosy mouth, while with the other she appealed to all the rest, Helena said to them, It's nothing. It's all over. Don't speak to her for one minute, and she is well. 
Jasper's hands had, in the same instant, lifted themselves from the keys and were now poised above them, as though he waited to resume. In that attitude he yet sat quiet, not even looking round when all the rest had changed their places and were reassuring one another. "'Pussy's not used to an audience. That's the fact,' said Edwin Drood. "'She got nervous and couldn't hold out. Besides, Jack, you are such a conscientious master and require so much that I believe you make her afraid of you. No wonder!' "'No wonder,' repeated Helena. "'There, Jack, you hear. You would be afraid of him under similar circumstances, wouldn't you, Miss Landless?' "'Not under any circumstances,' returned Helena. Jasper brought down his hands, looked over his shoulder, and begged to thank Miss Landless for her vindication of his character. Then he fell to dumbly playing, without striking the notes, while his little pupil was taken to an open window for air, and was otherwise petted and restored. When she was brought back, his place was empty.' "'Jack's gone, Pussy,' Edwin told her. "'I am more than half afraid he didn't like to be charged with being the monster who had frightened you.' But she answered never a word, and shivered, as if they had made her a little too cold. Miss Twinkleton now opining that, indeed, these were late hours, Mrs. Crisp Sparkle, for finding ourselves outside the walls of the nun's house, and that we who— undertook the formation of the future wives and mothers of england these last words in a lower voice as requiring to be communicated in confidence were really bound voice coming up again to set a better example than one of rakish habits wrappers were put in requisition and the two young cavaliers volunteered to see the ladies home it was soon done and the gate of the nun's house closed upon them. The boarders had retired, and only Mrs. Tisher in solitary vigil awaited the new pupil. Her bedroom being within Rosa's, very little introduction or explanation was necessary before she was placed in charge of her new friend, and left for the night. "'This is a blessed relief, my dear,' said Helena, "'that I have been dreading all day.' that I shall be brought to bay at this time. "'There are not many of us,' returned Rosa, "'and we are good-natured girls. "'At least the others are. "'I can answer for them.' <laughs> "'I can answer for you,' laughed Helena, "'searching the lovely little face with her dark, fiery eyes, "'and tenderly caressing the small figure. "'You will be a friend to me, won't you?' "'I hope so.' "'But the idea of my being a friend to you seems too absurd, though.' "'Why?' "'Oh, I am such a mite of a thing, and you are so womanly and handsome. "'You seem to have resolution and power enough to crush me. "'I sink into nothing by the side of your presence, even.' "'I am a neglected creature, my dear, "'unacquainted with all accomplishments, "'sensitively conscious that... I have everything to learn, and deeply ashamed to own my ignorance. "'And yet you acknowledge everything to me?' said Rosa. "'My pretty one, can I help it? There is a fascination in you.'
"'Oh, is there, though?' pouted Rosa, half in jest and half in earnest. "'What a pity Master Eddie doesn't feel it more!' Of course her relations towards that young gentleman had been already imparted in Minor Cannon Corner. "'Why, surely he must love you with all his heart!' cried Helena, with an earnestness that threatened to blaze into ferocity if he didn't. "'Eh? Oh, well, I suppose he does!' said Rosa, pouting again. "'I am sure I have no right to say he doesn't. Perhaps it's my fault. Perhaps I am not as nice to him as I ought to be. I don't think I am. But it is so ridiculous!' Helena's eyes demanded what was. "'We are!' said Rosa, answering as if she had spoken. "'We are such a ridiculous couple, and we are always quarrelling.' why because we both know we are ridiculous my dear rosa gave that answer as if it were the most conclusive answer in the world helena's masterful look was intent upon her face for a few moments and then she impulsively put out both her hands and said you will be my friend and help me indeed my dear i will replied rosa in a tone of affectionate childishness that went straight and true to her heart. "'I will be as good a friend as such a mite of a thing can be to such a noble creature as you. And be a friend to me, please. I don't understand myself, and I want a friend who can understand me very much indeed.' Helena Landless kissed her, and retaining both her hands said, "'Who is Mr. Jasper?' Rosa turned aside her head in answering, "'Eddie's uncle, and my music-master. "'You do not love him?' "'Ah!' She put her hands up to her face and shook with fear or horror. "'You know that he loves you.' "'Oh, don't, don't, don't!' cried Rosa, dropping on her knees and clinging to her new resource. "'Don't tell me of it. He terrifies me.' He haunts my thoughts like a dreadful ghost. I feel that I am never safe from him. I feel as if he could pass in through the wall when he is spoken of. She actually did look round, as if she dreaded to see him standing in the shadow behind her. Try and tell me more about it, darling. Yes, I will, I will, because you are so strong. But hold me the while and stay with me afterwards. "'My child, you speak as if he had threatened you in some dark way. "'He has never spoken to me about that. Never.' "'What has he done?' "'He has made a slave of me with his looks. "'He has forced me to understand him without his saying a word, "'and he has forced me to keep silence without his uttering a threat.' When I play, he never moves his eyes from my hands. When I sing, he never moves his eyes from my lips. When he corrects me, and strikes a note or a chord, or plays a passage, he himself is in the sounds, whispering that he pursues me as a lover, and commanding me to keep his secret. I avoid his eyes, but he forces me to see them without looking at them. Even when a glaze comes over them, which is sometimes the case, and he seems to wander away into a frightful sort of dream in which he threatens most, 
he obliges me to know it and to know that he is sitting close at my side more terrible to me than ever what is this imagined threatening pretty one what is threatened i don't know i have never even dared to think or wonder what it is and was this all to-night this was all except that to-night when he watched my lips so closely as i was singing besides feeling terrified i felt ashamed and passionately hurt it was as if he kissed me and i couldn't bear it but cried out you must never breathe this to any one eddy is devoted to him but you said to-night that you would not be afraid of him under any circumstances and that gives me who am so much afraid of him courage to tell only you hold me stay with me i am too frightened to be left by myself the lustrous gipsy face drooped over the clinging arms and bosom and the wild black hair fell down protectingly over the childish form there was a slumbering gleam of fire in the intense dark eyes though they were softened with compassion and admiration let whomsoever it most concerned look well to it end of chapter 7 read by alan chant of tunbridge kent england during the summer of 2007Chapter eight of the Mystery of Edwin Drood This is a Librivox recording. All Librivox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit Librivox.org. Recording by Alan Chant The Mystery of Edwin Drood The Unfinished Novel by Charles Dickens Chapter eight Daggers Drawn the two young men, having seen the damsels their charges enter the courtyard of the nun's house, and finding themselves coldly stared at by the brazen door-plate, as if the battered old beau with the glass in his eye were insolent, look at one another, look along the perspective of the moonlit street, and slowly walk away together. "'Do you stay here long, Mr. Drood?' says Neville. Oh, not this time, is the careless answer. I leave for London again to-morrow, but I shall be here on and off until next midsummer. Then I shall take my leave of Cloisterham, and England too, for many a long day, I expect. Are you going abroad? Going to wake up Egypt a little, is the condescending reply. Are you reading? Reading? repeats edwin drood with a touch of contempt no doing working engineering my small patrimony was left a part of the capital of the firm i am with by my father a former partner and i am a charge upon the firm until i come of age and then i step into my modest share in the concern jack you met him at dinner his until then my guardian and trustee I heard from Mr. Crisparkle of your other good fortune. 
"'What do you mean by my other good fortune?' Neville has made his remark in a watchfully advancing and yet furtive and shy manner, very expressive of that peculiar air already noticed of being at once hunter and hunted. Edwin has made his retort with an abruptness not at all polite. They stop and interchange a rather heated look. "'I hope,' says Neville, "'that there is no offence, Mr. Drood, in my innocently referring to your betrothal.' "'By George!' cries Edwin, leading on again in a somewhat quicker pace. "'Everybody in this chattering old cloisterum refers to it. I wonder no public house has been set up with my portrait for the sign of the betrothed's head, or Pussy's portrait, or one or the other.' "'I am not accountable for Mr. Crisparkle mentioning the matter to me, quite openly,' Neville begins. "'No, that's true, you are not,' Edwin drew dissents. "'But,' resumes Neville, "'I am accountable for mentioning it to you, and I did so on the supposition that you could not fail to be highly proud of it.' Now there are these two curious touches of human nature working the secret springs of this dialogue. Neville Landless is already enough impressed by little Rosebud to feel indignant that Edwin Drood, far below her, should hold his prize so lightly. Edwin Drood is already enough impressed by Helena to feel indignant that Helena's brother, far below her, should dispose of him so coolly and put him out of the way so entirely. However, the last remark had better be answered. So, says Edwin, "'I don't know, Mr. Neville,' adopting that mode of address from Mr. Crisp Sparkle, "'that what people are proudest of they usually talk most about. I don't know either that what they are proudest of they most like other people to talk about.' "'But I live a busy life, and I speak under correction by you readers, "'who ought to know everything, and I dare say do.' "'By this time they had both become savage. "'Mr. Neville, out in the open, "'Edwin Drood under the transparent cover of a popular tune, "'and a stop now and then to pretend to admire picturesque effects "'in the moonlight before him. "'It does not seem to me very civil in you,' remarks Neville at length, to reflect upon a stranger who comes here not having had your advantages to try to make up for lost time. But to be sure I was not brought up in busy life, and my ideas of civility were formed among heathens. "'Perhaps the best civility, whatever kind of people we are brought up among,' retorts Edwin Drood, "'is to mind our own business.' "'If you will set me that example, I promise to follow it.' "'Do you know that you take a great deal too much upon yourself?' is the angry rejoiner. "'And in that part of the world I come from, you would be called to account for it.' "'By whom, for instance?' asks Edwin Drood, coming to a halt, and surveying the other with a look of disdain. "'But here—' A startling right hand is laid on Edwin's shoulder, and Jasper stands between them. 
for it would seem that he, too, has strolled round by the nun's house, and has come up behind them on the shadowy side of the road. "'Ned, Ned, Ned,' he says, "'we must have no more of this. "'I don't like this. "'I have overheard high words between you two. "'Remember, my dear boy, "'you are almost in the position of host to-night. "'You belong, as it were, to the place, "'and in a manner represent it towards a stranger.' Mr. Neville is a stranger, and you should respect the obligations of hospitality. And Mr. Neville, laying his left hand on the inner shoulder of that young gentleman, and thus walking on between them, hand to shoulder on either side, you will pardon me, but I appeal to you to govern your temper too. Now, what is amiss? But why ask? Let there be nothing amiss— and the question is superfluous. We are all three on a good understanding, are we not? After a silent struggle between the two young men, who shall speak last, Edwin Drood strikes in with, So far as I am concerned, Jack, there is no anger in me. Nor in me, says Neville Landless, though not so freely, or perhaps so carelessly. "'But if Mr. Druden knew all that lies behind me far away from here, "'he might know better how it is that sharp-edged words have sharp edges to wound me.' "'Perhaps,' says Jasper, in a soothing manner, "'we had better not say anything, having the appearance of a remonstrance or condition. "'It might not seem generous. "'Frankly and freely,' You see, there is no anger in Ned. Frankly and freely, there is no anger in you, Mr. Neville? None at all, Mr. Jasper. Still not quite so frankly or so freely, or, be it said once again, not quite so carelessly, perhaps. All over, then. Now my bachelor gatehouse is a few yards from here— and the heater is on the fire, and the wine and glasses are on the table, and it is not a stone's throw from Minor Cannon Corner. Ned, you are up and away to-morrow. We will carry Mr. Neville in with us, and take a stirrup-cup. With all my heart, Jack. And with all mine, Mr. Jasper. Neville finds it impossible to say less, but would rather not go. He has an impression upon him that he has lost hold of his temper, feels that Edwin Drood's coolness, so far from being infectious, makes him red-hot. Mr. Jasper, still walking in the centre, hand to shoulder on either side, beautifully turns the refrain of a drinking-song, and they all go up to his rooms. There the first object visible, when he adds the light of a lamp to that of the fire, is the portrait over the chimney-piece. It is not an object calculated to improve the understanding between the two young men, as rather awkwardly reviving the subject of their difference. Accordingly, they both glance at it consciously, but say nothing. Jasper, however, who would appear from his conduct to have gained but an imperfect clue to the cause of their late high words, directly calls attention to it. "'You recognise that picture, Mr. Neville?' 
shading the lamp to throw the light upon it. "'I recognise it, but it is far from flattering the original.' "'Oh, you are hard upon it. It was done by Ned, who made me a present of it.' "'I am sorry for that, Mr. Drood.' Neville apologises with a real intention to apologise. "'If I had known I was in the artist's presence—' "'Oh, a joke, sir, a mere joke!' Edwin cuts in with a provoking yawn. "'A little humouring of Pussy's points. I am going to paint her gravely one of these days, if she's good.' The air of leisurely patronage and indifference with which this is said, as the speaker throws himself back in a chair, and clasps his hands at the back of his head, as a rest for it, is very exasperating to the excitable and excited Neville. Jasper looks observantly from the one to the other, slightly smiles, and turns his back to mix a jug of mulled wine at the fire. It seems to require much mixing and compounding. "'I suppose, Mr. Neville,' says Edwin, quick to resent the indignant protest against himself in the face of young Landless, which is fully as visible as the portrait, or the fire, or the lamp, "'I suppose that if you painted the picture of your lady-love—' "'I can't paint,' is the hasty interruption. That's your misfortune, and not your fault. You would if you could. But if you could, I suppose you would make her, no matter what she was in reality, Juno, Minerva, Diana, and Venus, all in one, eh? I have no lady-love, and I can't say. If I were to try my hand, says Edwin, with a boyish boastfulness getting up in him, on a portrait of Miss Landless, in earnest, mind you, in earnest, you should see what I could do. My sister's consent to sit for it being first got, I suppose, as it never will be got, I am afraid I shall never see what you can do. I must bear the loss. Jasper turns round from the fire, fills a large goblet glass for Edwin, and hands each his own, then fills for himself, saying, "'Come, Mr. Neville, we are to drink to my nephew Ned. As it is his foot that is in the stirrup, metaphorically, our stirrup-cup is to be devoted to him. Ned, my dearest fellow, my love!' Jasper sets the example of nearly emptying his glass, and Neville follows it. Edwin Drood says, "'Thank you both very much,' and follows the double example. "'Look at him!' cries Jasper, stretching out his hand admiringly and tenderly, though rallyingly, too. "'See where he lounges so easily, Mr. Neville. The world is all before him where to choose. A life of stirring work and interest, a life of change and excitement, a life of domestic ease and love.' Look at him. Edwin Drood's face has become quickly and remarkably flushed with the wine. So has the face of Neville Landless. Edwin sits still thrown back in his chair, making that rest of clasped hands for his head. See how little he heeds it all, 
Jasper proceeds in a bantering vein. It is hardly worth his while to pluck the golden fruit that hangs ripe on the tree for him. And yet consider the contrast, Mr. Neville. You and I have no prospect of stirring work and interest, or of change and excitement, or of domestic ease and love. You and I have no prospect, unless you are more fortunate than I am, which may easily be, but the tedious unchanging round of this dull place. "'Upon my soul, Jack,' says Edwin complacently, "'I feel quite apologetic for having my way smoothed, as you describe. "'But you know what I know, Jack, "'and it may not be so very easy as it seems, after all. "'May it, Pussy?' "'To the portrait, with a snap of his thumb and finger. "'We have got to hit it off yet, haven't we, Pussy?' "'You know what I mean, Jack?' "'His speech?' has become thick and indistinct. Jasper, quiet and self-possessed, looks to Neville as expecting his answer or comment. When Neville speaks, his speech is also thick and indistinct. "'It might have been better for Mr. Drew to have known some hardships,' he says defiantly. "'Pray,' retorts Edwin, turning merely his eyes in that direction. "'Pray, why might it have been better for Mr. Drood to have known some hardships?' "'Aye,' Jasper assents with an air of interest. "'Let us know why.' "'Because they might have made him more sensible,' says Neville, "'of good fortune.' That is not by any means necessarily the result of his own merits. Mr. Jasper quickly looks to his nephew for his rejoinder. "'Have you known hardships, may I ask?' says Edwin Drood, sitting upright. Mr. Jasper quickly looks to the other for his retort. "'I have.' "'And what have they made you sensible of?' Mr. Jasper's play of eyes between the two holds good throughout the dialogue to the end. "'I have told you once before to-night.' "'You have done nothing of the sort.' "'I tell you, I have, that you take a good deal too much upon yourself.' "'You added something else to that, if I remember?' "'Yes, I did say something else. Say it again.' "'I said that in the part of the world I come from, you would be called to account for it.' "'Only there!' cries Edwin Drood, with a contemptuous laugh. "'A long way off, I believe. Yes, I see.' That part of the world is at a safe distance. Say here, then, rejoins the other, rising in a fury. Say anywhere. Your vanity is intolerable. Your conceit is beyond endurance. You talk as if you were some rare and precious prize instead of a common boaster. You are a common fellow, and a common boaster. Poo-poo! says Edwin Drood, equally furious, but more collected. How should you know? 
You may know a black common fellow or a black common boaster when you see him, and no doubt you have a large acquaintance that way. But you are no judge of white men. This insulting allusion to his dark skin infuriates Neville to that violent degree that he flings the dregs of his wine at Edwin Drood, and is in the act of flinging the goblet after it, when his arm is caught in the nick of time by Jasper. "'Ned, my dear fellow,' he cries in a loud voice, "'I entreat you, I command you, to be still.' There has been a rush of all the three, and a clattering of glasses and overturning of chairs. "'Mr. Neville, for shame! Give this glass to me. Open your hand, sir. I will have it.' But Neville throws him off and pauses for an instant in a raging passion, with the goblet yet in his uplifted hand. Then he dashes it down under the grate, with such force that the broken splinters fly out again in a shower, and he leaves the house. When he first emerges into the night air, nothing around him is still or steady, nothing around him shows like what it is, he only knows that he stands with a bare head in the midst of a blood-red whirl, waiting to be struggled with, and to struggle to the death. But nothing happening, and the moon looking down upon him as if he were dead after a fit of wrath, he holds his steam hammer beating head and heart, and staggers away. Then he becomes half-conscious of having heard himself bolted and barred out, like a dangerous animal and thinks, what shall he do? Some wildly passionate ideas of the river dissolve under the spell of the moonlight on the cathedral and the graves, and the remembrance of his sister, and the thought of what he owes to the good man who has but that very day won his confidence and given him his pledge. He repairs to Minor Cannon Corner, and knocks softly at the door. It is Mr. Crisp-Sparkle's custom to sit up last of the early household, very softly touching his piano, and practising his favourite parts in concerted vocal music. The south wind that goes where it lists by way of Cannon Corner on a still night is not more subdued than Mr. Crisp-Sparkle at such times, regardful of the slumbers of the china shepherdess. His knock is immediately answered by Mr. Crisparkle himself. When he opens the door, candle in hand, his cheerful face falls, and disappointed amazement is in it. "'Mr. Neville, in this disorder, where have you been?' "'I have been to Mr. Jasper, sir, with his nephew.' "'Come in.' The minor canon props him by the elbow with a strong hand, in a strictly scientific manner worthy of his morning trainings, and turns him into his own little book-room, and shuts the door. "'I have begun ill, sir. I have begun dreadfully ill.' "'Too true. You are not sober, Mr. Neville.' "'I am afraid I am not, sir, though I can satisfy you at another time that I have had a very little indeed to drink.' and that it overcame me in the strangest and most sudden manner. "'Mr. Neville, Mr. Neville,' says the minor canon, shaking his head with a sorrowful smile, 
I have heard that said before. I think, my mind is much confused, but I think it is equally true of Mr. Jasper's nephew, sir. Very likely, is the dry rejoiner. We quarrelled, sir. He insulted me most grossly. He had heated that tigerish blood I told you of to-day before then. Mr. Neville, rejoins the minor canon, mildly but firmly, I request you not to speak to me with that clenched right hand. Unclench it, if you please. He goaded me, pursued the young man, instantly obeying, beyond my power of endurance. I cannot say whether or no he meant it at first, but he did it. He certainly meant it at last. In short, sir, with an irrepressible outburst, in the passion into which he lashed me, I would have cut him down if I could, and I tried to do it. "'You have clenched that hand again,' is Mr. Chris Sparkle's quiet commentary. "'I beg your pardon, sir.' "'You know your room, for I showed it you before dinner, but I will accompany you to it once more. Your arm, if you please, softly, for the house is all abed.' Scooping his hand into the same scientific elbow-rest as before, and backing it up with the inert strength of his arm, as skilfully as a police expert, and with an apparent repose quite unattainable by novices, Mr. Chris Sparkle conducts his pupil to the pleasant and orderly old room prepared for him. Arrived there, the young man throws himself into a chair, and flinging his arms upon his reading-table, rests his head upon them, with an air of wretched self-reproach. The gentle minor canon, has had it in his thoughts to leave the room without a word. But looking round at the door, and seeing this dejected figure, he turns back to it, touches it with a mild hand, says, "'Good night!' A sob is his only acknowledgment. He might have had many a worse. Perhaps could have had few better." Another soft knock at the outer door attracts his attention, and he goes downstairs. He opens it to Mr. Jasper, holding in his hand the pupil's hat. "'We had an awful scene with him,' says Jasper in a low voice. "'Has it been as bad as that?' "'Murderous!' Mr. Chris Sparkle remonstrates. "'No, no, no!' Do not use such strong words. He might have laid my dear boy dead at my feet. It is no fault of his that he did not, but that I was, through the mercy of God, swift and strong with him. He would have cut him down on my hearth. The phrase smites home. Ah, thinks Mr. Chris Sparkle, his own words. "'Seeing what I have seen to-night, and hearing what I have heard,' adds Jasper, with great earnestness, "'I shall never know peace of mind when there is danger of those two coming together with no one else to interfere.' "'It was horrible. There is something of the tiger in his dark blood.' "'Ah,' thinks Mr. Chris Sparkle, "'so he said.' 
"'You, my dear sir,' pursues Jasper, taking his hand, "'even you have accepted a dangerous charge.' "'You need have no fear for me, Jasper,' returns Mr. Crisparkle, with a quiet smile. "'I have none for myself.' "'I have none for myself,' returns Jasper, with an emphasis on the last pronoun, "'because I am not, nor am I in the way of being, the object of his hostility. "'But you may be, and my dear boy has been. "'Good night.' Mr. Crisparkle goes in, with the hat that has so easily, so almost imperceptibly, acquired the right to be hung up in his hall, hangs it up, and goes thoughtfully to bed. End of chapter 8 Read by Alan Chant of Tunbridge, Kent, England, during the late summer of 2007Chapter nine of the Mystery of Edwin Drood This is a Librivox recording. All Librivox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit Librivox.org Recording by Alan Chant The Mystery of Edwin Drood The Unfinished Novel by Charles Dickens Chapter nine Birds in the Bush Rosa having no relation that she knew in the world, had from the seventh year of her age known no home but the nun's house, and no mother but Miss Twinkleton. Her remembrance of her own mother was of a pretty little creature like herself, not much older than herself, it seemed to her, who had been brought home in her father's arms, drowned. The fatal accident had happened at a party of pleasure. Every fold and colour of the pretty summer dress and even the long wet hair with scattered petals of ruined flowers still clinging to it, as the dead young creature, in its sad, sad beauty, lay upon the bed, were fixed indelibly in Rosa's recollection. So were the wild despair and the subsequent bowed-down grief of her poor young father, who died broken-hearted on the first anniversary of that hard day. The betrothal of Rosa grew out of the soothing of his year of mental distress by his fast friend and old college companion, Drood, who likewise had been left a widower in his youth. But he too went the silent road into which all earthly pilgrimages merge, some sooner and some later, and thus the young couple had come to be as they were. The atmosphere of pity surrounding the little orphan girl when she first came to Cloisterham had never cleared away. It had taken brighter hues as she grew older, happier, prettier. Now it had been golden, now roseate, and now azure, but it had always adorned her with some soft light of its own. The general desire to console and caress her had caused her to be treated in the beginning as a child much younger than her years. The same desire had caused her to be still petted when she was a child no longer. Who should be her favourite? Who should anticipate this or that small present, or do her this or that small service? Who should take her home for the holidays? 
who should write to her oftenest when they were separated, and whom she would most rejoice to see again when they were reunited. Even these gentle rivalries were not without the slight dashes of bitterness in the nun's house. Well for the poor nuns in their day, if they hid no harder strife under their veils and rosaries. Thus Rosa had grown to be an amiable, giddy, wilful, winning little creature, spoilt in the sense of counting upon kindness from all around her, but not in the sense of repaying it with indifference. Possessing an exhaustless well of affection in her nature, its sparkling waters had freshened and brightened the nun's house for years, and yet its depths had never yet been moved. What might betide when that came to pass? What developing changes might fall upon the heedless head and light heart then? remained to be seen. By what means the news that there had been a quarrel between the two young men overnight, involving even some kind of onslaught by Mr. Neville upon Edwin Drood, got into Miss Twinkleton's establishment before breakfast, it is impossible to say. Whether it was brought in by the birds of the air, or came blowing in with the very air itself when the casement windows were set open, whether the baker brought it kneaded into his bread, or the milkman delivered it as part of the adulteration of his milk, or the housemaids, beating the dust out of their mats against the gate-posts, received it in exchange, deposited upon the mats by the town atmosphere, certain it is that the news permeated every gable of the old building before Miss Twinkleton was down, and that Miss Twinkleton herself received it through Mrs. Tisher, while in the act of dressing, or, as she might have expressed the phrase to a parent or guardian of a mythological turn, of sacrificing to the graces. Miss Landless's brother had thrown a bottle at Mr. Edwin Drood. Miss Landless's brother had thrown a knife at Mr. Edwin Drood. A knife became suggestive of a fork, and Miss Landless's brother had thrown a fork at Mr. Edwin Drood as in the governing precedents of Peter Piper, alleged to have picked the peck of pickled pepper, it was held to be physically desirable to have evidence of the existence of the peck of pickled pepper which Peter Piper was allegedly to have picked, so in this case it was held psychologically important to know why Miss Landless's brother threw a bottle, knife, or fork, or bottle, knife, and fork, for the cook had been given to understand it was all three, at Mr. Edwin Drood. Well, then, Miss Landless's brother had said he admired Miss Bud. Mr. Edwin Drood had said to Miss Landless's brother that he had no business to admire Miss Bud. Miss Landless's brother had then upped—this was the cook's exact information—with the bottle, knife, fork, and decanter, the decanter now coolly flying at everybody's head without the least introduction, and thrown them all at Mr. Edwin Drood. Poor little Rosa put a forefinger into each of her ears when these rumours began to circulate, and retired into a corner, beseeching not to be told any more, but Miss Landless begging permission of Miss Twinkleton to go and speak with her brother, and pretty plainly showing that she would take it if it were not given, struck out the more definite course of going to Mr. Crisp-Sparkle for accurate intelligence. When she came back, being first closeted with Miss Twinkleton, 
in order that anything objectionable in her tidings might be retained by that discreet filter, she imparted to Rosa only what had taken place, dwelling with a flushed cheek on the provocation her brother had received, but almost limiting it to that last gross affront as crowning some other words between them, and, out of consideration for her new friend, passing lightly over the fact that the other words had originated in her lover's taking things in general so very easily. To Rosa direct, she brought a petition from her brother that she would forgive him, and, having delivered it with sisterly earnestness, made an end of the subject. It was reserved for Miss Twinkleton to tone down the public mind of the nun's house. That lady, therefore, entering in a stately manner what plebeians might have called the schoolroom, but what, in the patrician language of the head of the nun's house, was euphemistically, not to say roundaboutly, denominated the apartment allotted to study, and saying with a forensic air, Ladies, all rose. Miss Tisha at the same time grouped herself behind her chief, as representing Queen Elizabeth's first historic female friend at Tilbury Fort, Miss Twinkleton then proceeded to remark that rumour, ladies, had been represented by the Bard of Avon. Needless were it to mention the immortal Shakespeare, or also called the Swan of his native city, not improbably with some reference to the ancient superstition that that bird of graceful plumage, Miss Jenkins, will please stand upright, sang sweetly on the approach of death, for which we have no ornithological authority, rumour, ladies, had been represented by that bard <coughs> who drew the celebrated Jew as painted full of tongues. Rumour in Cloisterham, Miss Ferdinand, will honour me with her attention, was no exception to the great limner's portrait of rumour elsewhere. A slight fracas between two young gentlemen occurring last night within a hundred miles of these peaceful walls, Miss Ferdinand, being apparently incorrigible, will have the kindness to write out this evening in the original language the first four fables of our vivacious neighbour, Monsieur La Fontaine, had been grossly exaggerated by rumour's voice. In the first alarm and anxiety, arising from our sympathy with a sweet young friend, not wholly to be disassociated from one of the gladiators in the bloodless arena in question, the impropriety of Miss Reynolds appearing to stab herself in the hand with a in is far too obvious, and too unglaringly unladylike to be pointed out. We descended from our maiden elevation to discuss the uncongenial and this unfit theme. Responsible inquiries having assured us that it was but one of those airy nothings pointed at by the poet whose name and date of birth Miss Giggles will supply within half an hour, we would now discard the subject, and concentrate our minds upon the grateful labours of the day. 
but the subject so survived the day nevertheless that miss ferdinand got into new trouble by surreptitiously clapping on a paper moustache at dinner-time and going through the motions of aiming a water-bottle at miss giggles who drew a tablespoon in defence now rosa thought of this unlucky quarrel a great deal and thought of it with an uncomfortable feeling that she was involved in it as cause or consequence or what not through being in a false position altogether as to her marriage engagement never free from such uneasiness when she was with her affianced husband it was not likely that she would be free from it when they were apart to-day too she was cast in upon herself and deprived of the relief of talking freely with her new friend because the quarrel had been with helena's brother and helena undisguisedly avoided the subject as a delicate and difficult one to herself at this critical time of all times rosa's guardian was announced as having come to see her mr grewgious had been well selected for his trust as a man of incomparable integrity but certainly for no other appropriate quality discernible on the surface he was an arid sandy man who if he had been put into a grinding-mill looked as if he would have ground immediately into high-dried snuff he had a scanty flat crop of hair in colour and consistency like some very mangy yellow fur tippet it was so unlike hair that it must have been a wig but for the stupendous improbability of anybody's voluntarily sporting such a head the little play of feature that his face presented was cut deep into it in a few hard curves that made it more like work and he had certain notches in his forehead which looked as though nature had been about to touch them into sensibility or refinement when she had impatiently thrown away the chisel and said i cannot i really cannot be worried to finish off this man let him go as he is with too great length of throat at his upper end and too much ankle-bone and heel at his lower with an awkward and hesitating manner with a shambling walk and with what is called a near sight which perhaps prevented his observing how much white cotton stocking he displayed to the public eye in contrast with his black suit mr grewgious still had some strange capacity in him of making on the whole an agreeable impression mr grewgious was discovered by his ward much discomforted by being in miss twinkleton's company in miss twinkleton's own sacred room dim forebodings of being examined in something and not coming well out of it seemed to oppress the poor gentleman when found in these circumstances my dear how do you do i am glad to see you my dear how much improved you are permit me to hand you a chair my dear miss twinkleton rose at her little writing-table saying with general sweetness as to the polite universe will you permit me to retire by no means madam on my account i beg that you will not move i must entreat permission to move returned miss twinkleton repeating the word with a charming grace but i will not withdraw since you are so obliging 
if I wheel my desk to this corner window, shall I be in the way? Madam, in the way? You are very kind. Rosa, my dear, you will be under no constraint, I am sure. Here Mr. Grugius, left by the fire with Rosa, said again, My dear, how do you do? I am glad to see you, my dear. And, having waited for her to sit down, sat down himself. My visits, said Mr. Grugius, are like those of the angels, not that I compare myself to an angel. No, sir, said Rosa. Not by any means, assented Mr. Grugius. I merely refer to my visits, which are few and far between. The angels are, we know well, upstairs. Miss Twinkleton looked round with a kind of stiff stare. I refer, my dear, said Mr. Grugius, laying his hand on Rosa's, as the possibility thrilled through his frame of his otherwise seeming to take the awful liberty of calling Miss Twinkleton, my dear, I refer to the other young ladies. Miss Twinkleton resumed her writing. Mr. Grugius, with a sense of not having managed his opening point quite as neatly as he might have desired, smoothed his head from back to front, as if he had just dived, and were pressing the water out. This smoothing action, however superfluous, was habitual with him, and took a pocket-book from his coat-pocket, and a stump of black-lead pencil from his waistcoat-pocket. "'I made,' he said, turning the leaves, "'I made a guiding memorandum or so, as I usually do, for I have no conversational powers whatever, to which I will, with your permission, my dear, refer. Well and happy? Truly, you are well and happy, my dear? You look so. Yes, indeed, sir, answered Rosa. For which, said Mr. Grugius, with a bend of his head towards the corner window, our warmest acknowledgments are due, and I am sure are rendered to the maternal kindness and the constant care and consideration of the lady whom I have now the honour to see before me. This point, again, made but a lame departure from Mr. Grugius, and never got to its destination, for Miss Twinkleton, feeling that the courtesies required her to be by this time quite outside the conversation, was biting the end of her pen and looking upward, as waiting for the descent of an idea from any member of the Celestial Nine, who might have one to spare. Mr. Grugius smoothed his smooth head again, and then made another reference to his pocket-book, lining out well and happy, as disposed of. Pounds, shillings, and pence is my next note. A dry subject for a young lady, but an important subject, too. Life is pounds, shillings, and pence. Death is— A sudden recollection of the death of her two parents seemed to stop him, and he said in a softer tone, and evidently inserting the negative as an afterthought, Death is not pounds, shillings, and pence. His voice was as hard and dry as himself, and fancy might have ground it straight, like himself, into high-dried snuff. 
and yet, through the very limited means of expression that he possessed, he seemed to express kindness. If nature had but finished him off, kindness might have been recognisable in his face at this moment. But if the notches in his forehead wouldn't fuse together, and if his face would work and couldn't play, what could he do, poor man? Pounds, shillings, and pence? You find your allowance always sufficient for your wants, my dear? Rosa wanted for nothing, and therefore it was ample. And you are not in debt? Rosa laughed at the idea of being in debt. It seemed to her inexperience a comical vagary of the imagination. Mr. Grugius stretched his near sight to be sure that this was her view of the case. Ah, he said as comment, with a furtive glance towards Miss Twinkleton, and lining out pounds, shillings, and pence, I spoke of having got among the angels, so I did. Rosa felt what his next memorandum would prove to be, and was blushing and folding a crease in her dress with one embarrassed hand long before he found it. Marriage! <clears throat> Mr. Grugius carried his smoothing hand down over his eyes and nose, and even chin, before drawing his chair a little nearer, and speaking a little more confidentially. I now touch, my dear, upon the point that is the direct cause of my troubling you with the present visit. Otherwise, being a particularly angular man, I should not have intruded here. I am the last man to intrude into a sphere for which I am so entirely unfitted. I feel, on these premises, as if I was a bear with the cramp in a youthful cotillon. His ungainliness gave him enough of the air of his simile to set Rosa off larting halfily. "'It strikes you in the same light,' said Mr. Grugius, with perfect calmness, "'just so. To return to my memorandum, Mr. Edwin has been to and fro here, as was arranged. You have mentioned that in your quarterly letters to me. And you like him, and he likes you.' "'I like him very much, sir,' rejoined Rosa. "'So I said, my dear,' returned her guardian, for whose ear the timid emphasis was much too fine. "'Good. And you correspond.' "'We write to one another,' said Rosa, pouting, as she recalled their epistolary differences. "'Such is the meaning that I attach to the word correspond in this application, my dear,' said Mr. Grugius. "'Good. All goes well.' Time works on, and at this next Christmas time it will become necessary, as a matter of form, to give the exemplary lady in the corner window, to whom we are so much indebted, business notice of your departure in the ensuing half-year. Your relations with her are far more than business relations, no doubt, but a residue of business remains in them, and business is business ever. I am a particularly angular man, 
proceeded Mr. Grugius, as if it suddenly occurred to him to mention it. "'And I am not used to give anything away. If, for these two reasons, some competent proxy would give you away, I should take it very kindly.' Rosa intimated, with her eyes on the ground, that she thought a substitute might be found, if required. "'Surely, surely,' said Mr. Grugius, "'for instance the gentleman who teaches dancing here. He would know how to do it with graceful propriety. He would advance and retire in a manner satisfactory to the feelings of the officiating clergyman and of yourself.' and the bridegroom and all parties concerned. "'I am—I am a particularly angular man,' said Mr. Grugius, as if he had made up his mind to screw it out at last, and should only blunder. Rosa sat still and silent. Perhaps her mind had not got quite so far as the ceremony yet, but was lagging on the way there. "'Memorandum will.' "'Now, my dear,' said Mr. Grugius, referring to his notes, disposing of marriage with his pencil, and taking a paper from his pocket, "'although I have before possessed you with the contents of your father's will, I think it right at this time to leave a certified copy of it in your hands.' And although Mr. Edwin is also aware of its contents, I think it right at this time likewise to place a certified copy of it in Mr. Jasper's hand. Not in his own? asked Rosa, looking up quickly. Cannot the copy go to Eddie himself? Why, yes, my dear, if you particularly wish it. But I spoke of Mr. Jasper as being his trustee. "'I do particularly wish it, if you please,' said Rosa, hurriedly and earnestly. "'I don't like Mr. Jasper to come between us in any way.' "'It is natural, I suppose,' said Mr. Grugius, "'that our young husband should be all in all, yes. "'You observe that I say, I suppose. "'The fact is, I am a particularly unnatural man, "'and I don't know from my own knowledge.' Rosa looked at him with some wonder. "'I mean,' he explained, "'that young ways were never my ways. I was the only offspring of parents far advanced in life, and I half believe I was born advanced in life myself. No personality is intended towards the name you will so soon change when I remark that, while the general growth of people seems to have come into existence buds, I seem to have come into existence a chip. I was a chip, and a very dry one, when I first became aware of myself. Respecting the other certified copy, your wish shall be complied with. Respecting your inheritance, I think you know all. It is an annuity of two hundred and fifty pounds. The savings upon that annuity, and some other items to your credit, all duly carried into account with vouchers, will place you in possession of a lump sum of money, 
rather exceeding seventeen hundred pounds. I am empowered to advance the cost of your preparations for your marriage out of that fund. All is told. Will you please tell me, said Rosa, taking the paper with a prettily knitted brow, but not opening it, whether I am right in what I am going to say? I can understand what you tell me so very much better than what I read in law-writings. My poor papa and Eddie's father made their agreement together, as very dear and firm and fast friends, in order that we too might be very dear and firm and fast friends after them. Just so. For the lasting good of both of us, and the lasting happiness of both of us. Just so that we might be to one another even much more than they had been to one another. Just so. It was not bound upon Eddie, and it was not bound upon me, by any forfeit, in case—don't be agitated, my dear—in the case that it brings tears into your affectionate eyes, even to picture to yourself— in the case of your not marrying one another, no, no forfeiture on either side. You would have then been my ward until you were of age. No worse would have befallen you. Bad enough, perhaps. And Eddie? He would have come into his partnership, derived from his father, and into its arrears to his credit, if any, on attaining his majority, just as now. Rosa, with her perplexed face and knitted brow, bit the corner of her attested copy, as she sat with her head on one side, looking abstractedly at the floor, and smoothing it with her foot. "'In short,' said Mr. Grugius, "'this betrothal is a wish, a sentiment, a friendly project, tenderly expressed on both sides.' That it was strongly felt, and that there was a lively hope that it would prosper, there can be no doubt. When you were both children, you began to be accustomed to it, and it has prospered. But circumstances alter cases, and I made this visit to-day, partly, indeed, principally, to discharge myself of the duty of telling you, my dear, that two young people can only be betrothed in marriage— except as a matter of convenience, and therefore mockery and misery, of their own free will, their own attachment, and their own assurance. It may or it may not prove a mistaken one, but we must take our chance on that, that they are suited to each other, and will make each other happy. Is it to be supposed, for example, that if either of your fathers were living now, and had any mistrust on that subject, his mind would not be changed, by the change of circumstances involved in the change of your years? Untenable, unreasonable, inconclusive, and preposterous? Mr. Grugius said all this, as if he were reading it aloud, or, still more, as if he were repeating a lesson, so expressionless of any approach to spontaneity were his face and manner. "'I have now, my dear,' he added, blurring out will with his pencil, 
discharged myself of what is doubtless a formal duty in this case, but still a duty in such a case. Memorandum wishes. My dear, is there any wish of yours that I can further? Rosa shook her head, with an almost plaintive air of hesitation in want of help. "'Is there any instruction that I can take from you with reference to your affairs?' "'I—I I should like to settle them with Eddie first, if you please,' said Rosa, plaiting the crease in her dress. "'Surely, surely,' returned Mr. Grugius, "'you two should be of one mind in all things. Is the young gentleman expected shortly?' "'He has gone away only this morning. "'He will be back at Christmas.' "'Nothing could happen better. "'You will, on his return at Christmas, "'arrange all matters of detail with him. "'You will then communicate with me, "'and I will discharge myself "'as a mere business acquaintance "'of my business responsibilities "'towards the accomplished lady in the corner window.' They will accrue at that season. Blurring pencil once again. Memorandum. Leave. Yes, I will now, my dear, take my leave. Could I, said Rosa, rising, as he jerked out of his chair in his ungainly way, could I ask you most kindly to come to me at Christmas, if I had anything particular to say to you? "'Why, certainly, certainly,' he rejoined. "'Apparently, if such a word can be used of one "'who has no apparent lights and shadows about him, "'complimented by the question. "'As a particularly angular man, "'I do not fit smoothly into the social circle, "'and consequently I have no other engagement at Christmas time "'than to partake on the twenty-fifth of a boiled turkey and celery sauce with a with a particularly angular clerk i have the good fortune to possess whose father being a norfolk farmer sends him up the, the turkey up as a present to me from the neighbourhood of norwich i should be quite proud of your wishing to see me my dear as a professional receiver of rents so very few people do wish to see me that the novelty would be bracing. For his ready acquiescence, the grateful Rosa put her hands upon his shoulders, stood on tiptoe, and instantly kissed him. "'Lord, bless me!' cried Mr. Grugius. "'Thank you, my dear. The honour is almost equal to the pleasure. Miss Twinkleton, madam, I have had a most satisfactory conversation with my ward, and I will now release you from the encumbrance of my presence. "'Nay, sir,' rejoined Miss Twinkleton, rising with a gracious condescension, "'say not encumbrance. Not so by any means. I cannot permit you to say so.' "'Thank you, madam. I have read in the newspapers,' said Mr. Grugius, stammering a little, "'that when a distinguished visitor, not that I am one, far from it, goes to a school, not that this is one, far from it, he asks for a holiday or some kind of grace. 
it being now the afternoon in the college of which you are the eminent head the young ladies might gain nothing except in name by having the rest of the day allowed them but if there is any young lady at all under a cloud might i solicit ah oh, mr grewgious mr grewgious cried miss twinkleton with a chastely rallying forefinger oh you gentlemen you gentlemen fie for shame that you are so hard upon us poor malign disciplinarians of our sex for your sakes but as miss ferdinand is at present weighed down by an incubus miss twinkleton might have said a pen and incubus of writing out monsieur la fontaine go to her rosa my dear and tell her the penalty is remitted in deference to the intercession of your guardian mr grewgious miss twinkleton here achieved a curtsey suggestive of marvels happening to her respected legs and which she came out of nobly three yards behind her starting-point as he held it incumbent upon him to call on mr jasper before leaving cloisterham mr grewgious went to the gatehouse and climbed its postern stair but mr jasper's door being closed and presenting on a slip of paper the word cathedral the fact of it being service time was borne into the mind of mr grewgious so he descended the stair again and crossing the close paused at the great western folding door of the cathedral which stood open on the fine and bright though short-lived afternoon for the airing of the place dear me said mr grewgious peeping in it's like looking down the throat of old time old time heaved a mouldy sigh from tomb and arch and vault and gloomy shadows began to deepen in corners and damps began to rise from green patches of stone and jewels cast upon the pavement of the nave from stained glass by the declining sun began to perish within the grill-gate of the chancel up the steps surmounted loomingly by the fast darkening organ white robes could be dimly seen and one feeble voice rising and falling in a cracked monotonous mutter could at intervals be faintly heard in the free outer air the river the green pastures and the brown arable lands the teeming hills and dales were reddened by the sunset while the distant little windows in windmills and farm homesteads shone patches of bright beaten gold in the cathedral all became grey murky and sepulchral and the cracked monotonous mutter went on like a dying voice until the organ and the choir burst forth and drowned it in a sea of music then the sea fell and the dying voice made another feeble effort and then the sea rose high and beat its life out and lashed the roof and surged among the arches and pierced the heights of the great tower and then the sea was dry and all was still mr grewgious had by that time walked to the chancel steps where he met the living waters coming out nothing is the matter thus jasper accosted him rather quickly you have not been sent for not at all not at all i came down of my own accord 
I have been to my pretty wards, and am now homeward bound again. You found her thriving? Blooming, indeed, most blooming. I merely came to tell her seriously what a betrothal by deceased parents is. And what is it, according to your judgment? Mr. Grugius noticed the whiteness of the lips that asked the question, and put it down to the chilling account of the cathedral. I merely came to tell her that it could not be considered binding against any such reason for its dissolution as a want of affection or want of disposition to carry it into effect on the side of either party. May I ask, had you any special reason for telling her that? Mr. Grugius answered somewhat sharply, "'The especial reason of doing my duty, sir, simply that.' Then he added, "'Come, Mr. Jasper, I know your affection for your nephew, and that you are quick to feel on his behalf. I assure you that this implies not the least doubt or disrespect to your nephew.' "'You could not,' returned Jasper, with a friendly pressure on his arm as they walked on side by side, speak more handsomely. Mr. Grugius pulled off his hat to smooth his head, and having smoothed it, nodded it contentedly, and put his hat on again. "'I will wager,' said Jasper, smiling. His lips were still so white that he was conscious of it, and bit and moistened them while speaking. "'I will wager that—' She hinted no wish to be released from Ned. "'And you will win your wager if you do,' retorted Mr. Grugius. "'We should allow some margin for little maidenly delicacies in a young motherless creature, under the circumstances, I suppose. It is not in my line. What do you think?' "'There can be no doubt of it.' "'I am glad you say so.' "'Because,' proceeded Mr. Grugius, who had all this time very knowingly felt his way round to action on his remembrance of what she had said of Jasper himself, "'because she seems to have some little delicate instinct that all preliminary arrangements had best be made between Mr. Edwin Drood and herself, don't you see? She don't want us, don't you know?' Jasper touched himself on the breast, and said, somewhat indistinctly, "'You mean me?' Mr. Grugius touched himself on the breast, and said, "'I mean us. Therefore let them have their little discussions and counsels together, when Mr. Edwin Drood comes back here at Christmas, and then you and I will step in and put the final touches to the business.' "'So you settled with her that you would come back at Christmas?' observed Jasper. "'I see. Mr. Grugius, as you quite fairly said just now, there is an exceptional attachment between my nephew and me that I am more sensitive for the dear, fortunate, happy, happy fellow than for myself. But it is only right that the young lady should be considered, as you have pointed out, and that I should accept my cue from you. I accept it. I understand that at Christmas 
they will complete their preparations for May, and that their marriage will be put in final train by themselves, and that nothing will remain for us but to put ourselves in train also, and have everything ready for our formal release from our trusts on Edwin's birthday. "'That is my understanding,' assented Mr. Grugius, as they shook hands to part. "'God bless them both!' "'God save them both!' cried Jasper. "'I said bless them,' remarked the former, looking back over his shoulder. "'I said save them,' returned the latter. "'Is there any difference?' End of chapter 9 Read by Alan Chant of Tunbridge, Kent, England In January 2008「Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet when you register with BetMGM you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features live betting options and the best daily promotions in the business and with BetMGM at your fingertips every play and every game matters more than ever place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. <sighs> visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours. Like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons' new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply.